I'm Adam Epstein, and I'm a dirty moderate. Dirty moderates, we knew the moment would come, and it has come. Queen Elizabeth II, Elizabeth Alexandra Mary Windsor of the House of Windsor, died at 96 today. This episode is actually being taped on the day she died. She is Britain's longest-serving monarch, and this is full of implications for the United Kingdom, for King Charles, the new king, her son, King Charles III, for the royal family, for the culture of England, and of course, the special relationship with the United States and Britain's relationship with other countries globally. But it has happened. We knew it would happen. The Queen took ill over the weekend at her Balmoral estate, which is in Scotland, and she passed. And obviously, most people only know Queen Elizabeth II. As of 2017, less than 20% of the British population was alive before she ascended to the throne. So five years later, that means even fewer were alive. I lived in England for two years, 2014 to 2016. I had the privilege of moving over there. I lived in London. I was in a relationship and I uh, traveled all around England. I went to the north of England quite a bit because that's where my partner of the time was from. And I felt a closer kinship to English history, though I was always inclined to English history. And I always had a respectful but detached view of kings and queens, of the monarchy. I mean, American coverage of the Queen's death here today at this 335 West Coast hour is, I would say, gloriously excessive. A little known fact is that though the monarchy is very good for business in England, and of course the Queen herself was beloved, the obsession with royalty, royal weddings and all things royal, House of Windsor and otherwise, is really intense here in America. Incredibly intense and often overwrought. To the point of obsession, and also, I think it kind of puts a viewpoint on America's relationship to monarchy that I believe is all the worse for wear. By that, I mean we fought a revolution against this. I love England. The monarchy is about 1,100 years old or so. Guess what? It's still a monarchy. And, you know, we've been in an era where we've come the closest to a quasi-dictator, would-be king, Donald John Trump who would have loved to have issued royal decrees from on high about the way the country should be governed. And when that happened to scrappy colonists back in the uh, 18th century, they threw the yoke of oppression of Great Britain off them. They didn't want that because there wasn't a representation. That's what that meant. There There were leaders, but they weren't accurately representing the American, North American colonist interests. So the queen is to be, I I believe, celebrated, and she did evolve with the times. And it's an interesting moment for King Charles III. There was a great play when I was living in London. Those of you who are listeners, my fellow Dirty Moderates, know I have a Broadway and theatrical background. A wonderful writer called Mike Bartlett uh, wrote a play called King Charles III, which pondered this very moment we're at. And then it was in 2014, it played the West End, subsequently came to Broadway. Terrifically written, it was a not-too-distant alternate reality that the Queen would be dead and Charles, the Prince of Wales, would accede to the British throne. Well, you know, the House of Windsor has an heir, as do all houses. You know, when I say houses, there was obviously the House of Tudor and the House of Stuart. 
the House of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha and the House of Hanover and, of course, now the House of Windsor. And about three centuries or so or more, we've had a parliamentary democracy to observe. Okay, so England, right, has not had a leader or a sovereign who makes the laws. That's left to their government, left to their prime minister who is an elected representative and left to the people of England and the United Kingdom. They send people like representatives to government, to Westminster and London to represent them from all over the country. King Charles III imagines what happens or what would happen if King Charles III himself, now king, today he's king. What would happen if he dissolved parliament? which he technically can do. It's very interesting. Let's say he had a, a bit of a row with the prime minister. Okay, that's what the play imagines, okay? What if he wrecked the sort of three-century-old constitutional foundation? The play is very clever in its allusions. It's a, a lot of Shakespearean allusions, King Lear, Henry IV, Macbeth. It's written in blank verse, but it has. it, it isn't just that it's an imaginative piece of art. Obviously, I, I think the world of the play, but... Actually, when I was living in England, and this is 2014, around November of 2014, Charles actually said to the press that he would be inclined toward, quote, heartfelt interventions as king. An activist monarch, you might say. So you could actually conceive of Mike Bartlett's reality. Life could imitate art. And this idea, you know, such a pose on behalf of Charles could compel the entire political establishment of a very fraught thousand-plus-year-old monarchy and what that means for the country, right? The country of the United Kingdom would be irrevocably changed. It would redefine a very venerated institution, that being the monarchy, and that could be because of the king, not because of their actual elected leaders. You know, Great Britain has grown accustomed to a very, very, very quiet, diffident, but powerful sovereign. That's what Queen Elizabeth was known for. Okay, she ascended the throne. She was 25 years old. This was just seven years after the end of World War II. And she had an Edwardian upbringing, right? She's born in the 20s. She's born in the age of um, a, a monarchy that held less sway, you might say, than it once had in the history of England, uh, raised in the post-Victorian era. She is, for those that don't know, the great-great-granddaughter of Queen Victoria. So, you know, Queen Victoria was ruling at a time, that's where we get the term Victorian England from, largely the 19th century. Grew at a time when women, she was ruling at a time, excuse me, when women, you know, retired to their drawing rooms and bedrooms so that men could repair to their chambers for brandy and cigars and what have you, or important issues. Now, Victoria herself had a 64-year reign, and her reign was synonymous with incredible cultural currents, cultural cross-currents, cultural ideas, cultural ferment. Not just the austere social mores that you read about in Austin and Dickens and all that stuff, but the kind of cultural, economic, and sociological fabric for most of the 19th century. Now, Elizabeth, who seemed indefatigable and really lived an amazing life, dying at 96 today, eventually eclipsed the longevity of her great-great-grandmother's reign. That's right. Since September 9th, 2015. Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth, the second Elizabeth, by the way, you remember the original Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth I, who was a great Tudor queen um, ruling in uh, the 1400s. This is Queen Elizabeth II. She became the longest serving sovereign monarch regent, pick a term, September 9th, 2015. So in the realm of politics in England, this is very important, guys. The queen has been seemingly apolitical, at least on the outside. We don't really even know where she stands. Nobody does. Sometimes she winks and nods. Things leak to the press, but she doesn't come out and make 
statements, grand statements. She's got something of a deadpan mug. You know, I once said it was kind of a face as inscrutable as a fusty Oxford professor. She's a constitutional monarch, and she's maintained this sort of time-honored deference to parliament and to the prime minister who she meets with every week. It's called an audience. By the way, there was an amazing play about that too. Peter Morgan, great writer, wrote a play called The Audience, which earned Helen Mirren great plaudits, uh, opened on Broadway as well. She won a Tony for it about Queen Elizabeth meeting with all the prime ministers through her entire reign up until then. Amazing. And like her father before her, who was King George VI, you may have seen a King's speech. He went by Bertie, B-E-R-T-I-E. He famously had a stutter and had to be coached. His father was King George V. Those kings and Elizabeth have hewn to a posture of diffidence on public matters. The only real monarch in the last hundred so years or more who didn't want to play ball, who wanted to, who couldn't sort of reconcile this practice, this deference with the monarchy was King Edward VIII, who actually abdicated the throne so he could marry a twice divorced American named Wallace Simpson. And that cost him the throne. And it did in many ways, I don't want to say undermine, but it perhaps loosened arguably the United Kingdom from its constitutional moorings. And Edward didn't know how to be self-effacing. You know, he wanted the abdication. He wanted to run off with her. And he was very vocal on foreign policy. Now, he was Queen Elizabeth's mother. So, my God, Queen Elizabeth's mother, excuse me, he's Queen Elizabeth's uncle, her father's brother. He was very vocal in foreign policy. And Nazism, fascism, you know, were, were reigning because um, this is the late 30s now. And um, this was appalling to the British, especially because of the Blitz and what have you. This was, Blitz actually hadn't happened yet, but the, the English people, did not like that he was seen showing any kind of sympathy to the Germans. They'd already been at war with them once. And this war was going to look bleaker and more deadly. Now, enter Charles. He's always had longstanding commitments, quietly, but the environment he's interested, agriculture, architecture. And he's spoken up on them, too. He also has had a tendency to write things down. This has been reported today in the obsessive, excessive coverage of the Queen's passing that the British Supreme Court looked at has continued to look at the issue of what are called black spider memos. And those are these memos. And Charles uh, famously has an illegible scrawl, so, so it's kind of hard to read it. He, he expresses opinion in writing, you know, and he wrote missives, you know, to the various government ministers. You're not supposed to do that. You know, firing off opinions or letters, you know, and this all, this too represents something of an aberration in the history of the monarchy, certainly the modern monarchy, right? Because they, there's a genius to the British constitutional monarchy, because think about this. There is an unelected head of state, the queen, king, whatever, the most elevated politician in the land who doesn't want to do politics and doesn't have to, and people don't want them to. They eschew it. They resist it, right? And then there's the House of Commons, which is the House of the People, right? And to a lesser extent, the House of Lords, which is kind of their more royal chamber. But they pass legislation, but it has to pass House of Commons, okay? The Crown's ability to select a prime minister or refuse a government's request to dissolve a parliament, which is exactly what Mike Bartlett uh, writes about in King Charles III, is so undemocratic and would be so horrible that, you know, while it's entertaining and gripping and cause for great speculation, the fact that it hasn't happened in so long, or since the English have agreed to have a parliamentary democracy, is a testament to their trust and durability. It's a society that has not surrendered to insurrectionist mobs. <clears throat> Excuse me. I mean, um, I think you know what I mean by that. But it's very uh, telling that there is a kind of respect 
in a country very different from ours that yes, yes, that we broke free from, from a crazy King George III, his dysfunctional house of Hanover. Americans are enthralled by them though, but celebrity obsessed Americans forget what we fought against, even though despite the psychodrama, despite the taxation with the representation, there has been a deference to government on the part of the British. You know, we have our famously mandated system of checks and balance, and that's always put our government to this perpetual give and take since the Federalists and Anti-Federalists began the nation. Since the Constitution was first ratified, we have it in our stark political divisions today. That's why I love to hear from dirty moderates. And you folks who listen, I hope know why I'm a dirty moderate for just that. The UK has no written constitution. So it makes Charles's intentions, whether in Bartlett's play or perhaps in real life, appear to be a breach of the public trust. Yeah, let the royals have their power, the conventional wisdom goes, as long as they don't use it. It's an interesting paradox, isn't it? It's a very tenuous precept, though. You think about it because it's a parliamentary democracy so long as the term parliamentary is not some innocuous modifier, meaning, well, should Charles recall his ancestor, King Charles I? He defied parliament and was beheaded in 1649. But what about the basis, the foundation for why monarchs cede power to parliament? Well, well, there was something called the Glorious Revolution of 1688, which really, really augured a significant check on parliament's power. There was also the Act of Settlement of 1701. All these things are really interesting. How will Charles reconstitute the role of the modern monarchy without upending it? And if as a monarch, he makes his views public with the hope of, let's say, swaying policy, will he make the state mistake of behaving, not just winking, but behaving in a kind of monarchical tyranny with the inevitable now King Charles III, would he inevitably, I don't know, call it too much chutzpah and ambition, attempt to kind of rewrite the unwritten British constitution? Oh, it's interesting. I mean, Charles has never had this sort of rock star popularity of Diana, famously, who he, whom he divorced, had William and Harry with. He's always was in love with Camilla Parker Bowles, still with her. It's interesting. It's a very interesting thing. And King Charles III, I, and I, I keep going back to the play because we're kind of living in the moment, but it does imagine a very rebellious British populace, a restive one, ready to rise up in defiance, right, of a king that would overstep his bounds. We don't know that he will, but. Again, he's crept into the political process in a way, even as Prince of Wales, that was unseemly. Now, Americans are going to relish all the ceremonial brio of this coronation and state funeral for the queen. And these are the most famous aristocrats in the world. Now, remember this, though. Brits, no written constitution. They don't seem that persuaded that royalism is exactly the same as democratic rule. That's why they like their parliament. You know, they've had fair share of prime ministers just this week. Liz Truss is the new prime minister. She's a conservative. And funnily enough, the third woman to be prime minister of Britain, they're all conservatives. Maggie Thatcher, Theresa May, and now Liz Truss. Uh, I'm sympathetic to the Tories in England, so I wish Prime Minister Truss well. Uh, I think Tory government is preferable because I do think Tory government, unlike conservatism in America, is a moderate a dirty moderate kind. But anyway, when Britain wins a battle, famously, they would shout, God save the queen. And then when they lose, you know, often the prime minister gets voted out. Winston Churchill, you know, even though he won, he still got voted out. But they usually, voters usually respond. They shout, God save the queen. Now it might be God save the king. And 
It's their mantra, but it isn't their constitutional bedrock. It's embedded for sure. It's part of their tradition, but they defer to common sense. They defer to the prospect of a fair and just system, even though they've had a royal for all of their existence, really. And so King Charles III, what's he going to do? And how useful will he be? One wonders, does he embolden the monarchy like his his mother, his beloved mother? Or does he find it his own personal tool? Does he make it a power grab? And perhaps by doing so, make the monarchy itself mm, not quite as useful or quite as beloved? It's an interesting question. We don't know. We don't know. But this is where we are, folks. It is a momentous uh, moment also for the Anglo-American relationship that is the special relationship between the United States and Great Britain because we do have that. They are our closest ally. France is our oldest ally, but they're our closest ally despite our our past. But as Americans, y'all are all swept up in royal coverage. Remember adoring a beloved monarch, watching English tradition can be captivating. But remember the price we paid for fighting against that, right? 246 years ago, that was the price of our freedom. Folks, God save the king. That's all I can say. Do not forget always to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. And we are imploring all of you to vote.org, vote.org to go there and register. And that doesn't mean just register yourself. It means if you have a dog walker, if you have a masseuse, if you've got anybody of voting age, it doesn't matter who they are at the grocery store, post office, your butcher, your baker, and your candlestick ma- candlestick maker, your butcher, your baker, and your candlestick maker. Go to vote.org. Uh, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Dirty Moderate. I'm also excited to leave you this. For all of you who listen, thank you. We couldn't do this without you. We love the growth we've seen, and we will continue to bring you what we believe is content-free of partisan pablum and no dogma dealers here. But you're going to get more of me. You're going to get to read me in print. And that is coming your way very, very soon. So you will listen to me, you will read me, and hopefully you'll never get enough of me. In the meantime, stay dirty, stay moderate, and stay safe.